From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. We all oftentimes find ourselves in doctor's office waiting rooms, sitting patiently while doing the right thing and taking care of ourselves and our health. However, there is a real issue called a no-show rate that is impacting quality of care in clinics. There are plenty of reasons a patient may not show up to an appointment. Their symptoms clear up, they may forget, or not have a ride. Behind the scenes, these no-shows have major impacts on hospital scheduling and quality of care for other patients. Dr. Peter Steinberg is currently looking at how no-shows impact urology, a surgical specialty relying heavily on referrals, and the administrative ways to combat lost appointment slots. Dr. Steinberg, thank you uh, for joining us and coming back on the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So um, the last time you were here, we talked about kind of the history of the treatment of kidney stones. You're a urologist. Yes. Um, and you've been working on a study involving kidney stone patients, but not directly looking at the treatment of that condition. Um, can you tell us what the study was focusing on? Sure. We were uh, specifically interested in the no-show rate of patients who were being seen in our ER. Uh, and diagnosed with a kidney stone and then being referred to our practice. Um, so we were interested in trying to figure out what would predict who would actually make it in for follow-up, um, trying to reduce the no-show rate in our practice based on that. Okay. And so let's um, tell me about why, how much of a problem this was in your practice. What were you seeing that made you want to go so far as to create a study around this? Sure. So um, hospital-wide, uh, there's about a 10% no-show rate amongst all specialties, so which is pretty high when you think about it. Um, within our urology group, um, the no-show rates vary from the low end being around maybe 5% or a little less for some of the providers. Um, but some of our clinics had a no-show rate pushing 30 to 35%. Um, and I was noticing in my practice it was creeping up from a kind of 5% rate into more of a 10 ish percent no-show rate. Um, and this was really disruptive to being able to provide care to a lot of people because if you have slots where people don't show up, you're just sitting around part of the day. Um, so it's something I wanted to look into further and try to see if we could mitigate. And what do you define as a no-show in the per- for the purposes of the study? Sure. So um, basically three things can happen if you have a doctor's visit. You can either show up. So you call in, you have an appointment, you know, you come at your appointed time and you show up for it. Um, you can cancel the appointment. So meaning uh, either before or the day of, you call up and say, hey, I'm not coming. Um, or you can just not show up. Um, and in our system, uh, we uh, differentiate between people who cancel and don't show because um, there are some differences between sort of the two behaviors between those groups. Um, you know, people who are calling in to cancel, you know, are trying to be mindful of the fact that they're not going to make it uh, and, and don't want to hog a slot from someone else um, as opposed to someone who doesn't show up. Maybe they didn't know about the appointment. Uh, maybe they don't care to come to the appointment. Um, but there's a difference there. Um, if you don't know someone is coming, you can't do something with their slot 
they just don't show up and the time is wasted. Um, versus someone who cancels, you might be able to re, you know, shuffle things around, get someone to come in, et cetera, et cetera. And um, so you said that some practices or some hospitals, it's as high as 30% this no-show rate. In some places it's even higher than that. Yeah. But we were noticing in our urology group that there was one particular clinic where the no-show rate was pushing uh, about a third of the patients. Um, historically, it's been a, a high ratio in that particular clinic. Um, but we were noticing amongst other providers as well that they were starting to have a, a higher rate of no-shows. And so what types of things do practices and hospitals do to compensate for no-shows? Maybe what might people not realize um, that the effect of this is? Sure. So it's really, it's a challenging area. Um, there are different things you can try to do. Um, part of what we're trying to do is figure out what are some of the best practices or interventions to sort that out. So there's really two ways of looking at it. There's one way of looking at it where you want to try to get everybody to come in. So you've made an appointment and you want the people to show up. Um, and the other way of looking at it is, well, maybe it's not that critical that the person comes in. You just want to know if they're not going to be there. And if they're not going to come, try to not have it impact the schedule. So if you're trying to get people to come in, um, there are a lot of different ways to try to achieve that. So traditional means of reminding patients about appointments are things like mailing them letters, uh, phone calls. Um, some more modern things to try to combat that are to send text messages to patients. Um, there's some different systems we have for you uh, for that in our hospital. Uh, there are web-based portals. So our particular hospital has a, a patient portal called Patient Site, um, where messages can be pushed to people or emails sent to them reminding them about appointments. So that's one strategy to try to you know find ways to get outreach to the patients to get them to come in. Uh, maybe it's someone where you have the wrong phone number. Maybe they can't get a text message on their phone. Maybe it's someone who doesn't uh, you know read or speak English adequately to communicate on the phone. Uh, might be someone where you have the wrong address. So there's a lot of different ways to tackle that. And then the flip side is, well, let's say the appointment was made, but it's not critical that the patient's there. Maybe the problem has resolved. So I see a lot of people with kidney stones. A lot of people who don't come in, they've probably passed their stone. They're no longer in pain, and they might not even need to see me. Um, but we want to have that spot available for someone else. Um, so what you can do there is you can change the way you schedule patients to try to mitigate the effects of them not coming in. Um, and the classic ways to do that are to either double or triple book a slot. So let's say it's 9 a.m. You can put two patients in that time slot. And so if somebody doesn't show up, you still see another patient. Or you can put someone towards the end of a, uh, a half session. So most people block their time by morning and afternoon. You know, some people do nights and weekends, but usually you have about a three or four hour block where you see patients. And you can put people you think might not come in towards the end of the session. So if they don't show up, you're just done early or you catch up on paperwork. Or if you're running behind, you know, you catch up a little bit as opposed to you know, right in the middle of the schedule, somebody doesn't come in and then everything grinds to a halt. So let's talk a little bit about the design of the study. How did you get your patient data? Was it just from your records in your practice or did you expand to a wider area? So the way things started, um, we have a really good discharge system with our emergency room. And so we actually had five years of patients who were sent out of the ER uh, and uh, told to have urology follow-up. And the way the system would work, the ER would just hit a button when they sent them home, 
which would send an email to our group. So we had this list of almost 1,100 patients who were seen in our ER and suggested to come follow up with us. So we took that information um, and created a database looking at you know who followed up within three months, 90 days with our group, uh, who saw a primary care doctor within the same amount of time, who came back to the ER, who got admitted to the hospital, and who had surgery um, within that time window. Uh, and then we did some modeling to try to figure out what predicted who would come in and who wouldn't. Okay. And um, I took a look at the abstract, and it, there was some pretty significant differences between um, who followed up and who didn't based on some demographics. Could you give us a kind of rundown of that? Absolutely. So um, the most interesting thing was, uh, and the strongest finding we found was associated with patient age. Uh, That was clearly the single biggest factor predicting who would come in for a follow-up visit and who wouldn't. Um, So basically, what the youngest folks we can see at our hospital are about 18. There's some 17-year-olds, but generally speaking, 18 and older. And for each year you get over age 18, your chance of coming in for follow-up goes up by 2 to 3%. So it was really a huge effect. Uh, and basically, people in their 20s uh, n- you know, don't come in for follow-up at the same rate that people in their 60s and 70s and 80s do actually come in. So um, there's a really dramatic difference you could see there. And basically, the chance of someone in his 20s coming in for follow-up was about 50% of uh, someone who was, uh, was substantially older in our cohort. Does that have anything to do with how... with? kidney stones and age, like are younger people more likely to pass them easily than older people? So it's an interesting question. Uh, I think that there are a couple ways to look at it. So the average age in our group was in the late 40s. It was about 47 years old. And coincidentally, that was the average age of the patients who no-showed us, actually. It was also 47 for all conditions. Um, I think that's just uh, luck. But yeah. um, but um, so kidney stones tend to strike people who are in their you know 40s, 50s, a little bit in the 60s. But it's really a disease sort of of middle age. Um, so one thing that does happen is people get older, and we're talking more in the elderly population, so people getting into, I hate to say it, my parents are in their 70s, but people in their you know 70s, 80s, if they have kidney stones, it's not as common a condition, but they usually have a more serious course yeah. than someone who's younger. Um, they're more likely to be hospitalized. They're more likely to have infections associated with their stone, kidney failure. They're more likely to need surgery and be admitted to the hospital. So part of it is uh, the spectrum of disease is a little bit worse in people who are older. They have a higher chance of a more complex presentation. Um, Folks who are younger, there are other issues that they might have. um, But in general, you're really just faced with how much pain are they in. You know, it's not as likely that they're going to have kidney failure or a serious infection or problems like that. So a lot of those folks, once they feel better, uh, and they're not used to going to doctors, a lot of these folks, because they're young and healthy, a lot of times they probably say, you know what, I feel better. I think this problem is resolved. I'm just going to get on with my life. With this study, was part of it to look at strategies to mitigate no-shows? Were you looking at that, or was this just purely trying to quantify the problem? The, the initial goal was to quantify the problem and then figure out you know, what is predicting who's not coming in. And then we wanted to have a combination of enhanced outreach and some of these risk mitigation uh, visit booking strategies apply to those patients. Mm-hmm. Um, we ran into some interesting things along the way in terms of uh, how some of our systems are structured, but that was really the initial goal was, all right, define what the problem is, try to figure out if we can predict who's not going to come in, um, and then 
these are the interventions we're going to try to ultimately implement. So the prediction piece, could you talk a little bit about um, how you can predict and maybe what you found in terms of who's likely to no-show versus not? So uh, obviously one of the factors we got from our modeling of the discharge data was age is a huge, mm -hmm. huge mm -hmm. predictor. Um, but the other big thing, and this has been seen in other studies that have looked at this, is really prior no-shows are a huge factor in whether people are coming in or not. Um, and, you know, some people no-show certain types of providers and then will show up for other sorts of visits. But in general, that's a really big factor that you can look at that's highly predictive of who's not going to come in. And once we started looking a little more in depth into some of the charts of patients who weren't coming in in our practice, um, we noticed that about half of them had had a prior no-show within just about the last 12 to 18 months um, in terms of people who didn't come in. So that was a really big red flag that you're dealing with someone who is at high risk of not coming in as well. And you're looking at charts for their visits across different providers or just in your practice? Uh, across the whole yeah. hospital system. Obviously, we don't have access to other hospitals, right. but um, within the Beth Israel system, you can just scan through and look and see, you know, did the patient keep appointments, no-show them, cancel them, and you can get a, a sense as to, you know, is this someone who's likely to come in or not? Okay, so age is a big predictor prior no-shows, are there any other predictors that you found? So those were the two biggest ones that we found. Um, we didn't look at things like weather. Um, some other things that we thought might have an effect really didn't have much of an effect, like primary language or people who don't speak English. Um, we didn't see a huge amount of uh, uh, information based on insurance type, government or private, that didn't have a big impact on that. Those were really two of the biggest factors that we, that we saw. And um, so the third piece, the mitigation strategies, what have you done since the since doing the study to try to reduce the amount of no-shows? So uh, we've always been cognizant of people that we, even before we started doing this, if you really didn't think someone was going to come in, um, of trying to use some of those strategies of either trying to get a hold of them, confirming are they coming, or double booking them or putting them at the end of a visit. Um, the thing that we really thought we were going to be able to do would just be to enhance our text message outreach to these folks. Um, but it turns out the system we have for doing that is very limited in terms of mm -hmm. what you can do. You can actually only send one message three or four business days before a visit. So uh, people need to have a cell phone as the primary point of contact. They need to opt into it. So I thought that was going to be the panacea for us. And it turns out there's a lot of limitations there. Mm -hmm. um, Subsequent to that, I've realized our hospital is working on some solutions for that. Um, but that's what we thought our primary intervention was going to be. We would just bombard these people with text messages, and that would solve the issue. That obviously hasn't panned out the way I thought it would. Um, but in general, what we've done is we've just had a heightened awareness of people who have not shown up for other visits. You know, for instance, uh, recently we had someone who no-showed three visits in a month. Um, and, you know, so obviously that person represented a pretty high percentage of our no-shows. <laughs> right. um, so, and we had a couple other people who were repeat offenders. So a lot of it was just having some recognition of, here's someone who's likely not to come in. Hey, can you make sure this person is not at eight in the morning or the first person after lunch? Um, so that's really most of what we've been doing is massaging the schedule. Obviously, we're trying to get a hold of them, um, right, right. but we're, we're still limited to phone calls and mailing folks, and they can only, again, get that one text if they've opted into our system. Right. So you are somewhat limited by the system in place at the hospital, and are there any other limitations? Like, is there are there legal issues that you can't 
contact someone a certain amount of time, like sending them repeat mailings? You know, that, that's actually an interesting uh, point that you bring up. I'm not a lawyer. Um, my right. father and brother are. Um, well, I sometimes think can we I get am. Them on the but phone, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can call my brother. He can help us. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting question. We've anecdotally heard of some patients recently who are saying, why are you guys bombarding me with, you know, some people are getting three or four different types of communication mm. to make sure they're, you know, they're getting a letter, they're getting an email. Right. If they're in the text system, they're getting that. And they may also get a phone call. Um, so some people who are going to come in and are diligent mm. are wondering, you know, what are you doing to me? Um, is that grounds for suing Beth Israel for harassment? You know, I don't know. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but I do think it is uh, something that our, our legal crew is interested in looking at just to see, you know, what exposures exist for the medical center um, in terms of, are you harassing someone trying to ensure someone's going to come in or not? Mm. Um, we're obviously well-intentioned in trying to make sure that people who are coming are coming. And if they're not, we know they're not. So someone else can come in to see them. But it's an interesting, an interesting question. Um, but as of now, all we've gotten are just sort of anecdotal comments of, you know, why are you contacting me so much right. to make sure I'm coming to this visit? Have you thought about what other interventions you'd like to see in the future going forward that your practice or the hospital could do to improve this? So it's a really interesting question. And, you know, so much of um, medicine is not about cutting edge right. stuff. You know, it's not about what's the newest drug, what's the craziest surgery you can do, what's this gene therapy thing. A lot of it is, you know, how do you do basic tasks and deliver basic things such as how do you confirm people are coming to their appointments? I mean, this seems mm -hmm. like a pretty trivial thing that, you know, you think Walmart probably figured out 50 years ago or something, right? You know, there should be some standard way to do this. Uh, the fact of the matter is there is no single standard way to contact patients. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, um, you could come up with some type of policy or algorithm. There are always going to be exceptions to that. Uh, you know, someone who doesn't have an address. I mean, I guess you're supposed to have an address, but what if somebody doesn't have one? Right. Uh, what if somebody doesn't have a phone? What if someone has a phone, but it's not a cell phone? What if somebody has a cell phone, but won't opt into getting text messages? Right. Um, so, you know, what if someone won't use our online portal? So there are all these different issues. And I think the what you're really getting at is, you know, what's the optimal workflow for people in our office booking these appointments what's the best way they can capture the most people with doing the least amount of redundant work? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that that's something we don't know the answer to. Um, it's interesting you ask. I literally just walked out of a meeting 45 minutes ago where we were talking about this yeah. um, as part of dealing with this hospital-wide. Mm. And I think that's something that's going to be ongoing is trying to gather some data on what are the best practices uh, to try to get. It's it's geared towards people not coming in, but what are the best practices to try to alert people? Um, and you know, maybe there are minimums you can meet. Maybe once our tech system is more robust, maybe that will serve as the primary way to confirm appointments. And then people don't need letters or phone calls. Um, but I don't know the answer to that. And it's definitely something that's cumbersome and takes up a lot of time. Um, and, uh, you know, I just had a doctor's appointment recently. I got a letter. Um, I got the text reminder. I texted, yes, I'm coming and, you know, never heard anything else again. So, you know, maybe that practice, that's enough for them. I don't know. Um, but it's going to vary and, um, it'll be interesting to see what best practices emerge. Yeah. I think you brought up some interesting issues like people that don't have a mobile phone or don't opt in or, you know, people move and the process of changing all your addresses for everything takes months and you forget one. And so there are a lot of different considerations to make um, 
in terms of like how to best get people to come in. And I even think about some more basic things. I, I don't have a massive amount of non-English speaking patients in my right. practice, but it's probably five to 10% of my patients. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about, uh, you know, I have a fair number of Chinese speaking patients. So if you send a text message to someone, you know, is it only going to be in English? I mean, someone who, right. you know, perhaps is Spanish speaking might be able to figure out what you sent in an English text message, but there's no way someone who speaks Mandarin is going to figure out what the message just said. Right. Um, so these are a lot of the, the barriers that we have. And with most things, you know, most folks, it's not a big deal. I mean, again, most people come to their appointments. Hospital-wide, it's 90% of people. And in my practice, it's between 90 and 95%. So mm-hmm. it's not a huge problem most of the time. But again, it's that 5 to 10% of people who are creating the issue. You know, what do you do? Are they out of town? Are they couch surfing? Does this person stop paying the cell phone bill? You know, all these other factors come into play. How was the study funded? How, who paid for all this? Uh, well, it's not basically. So it was because I think when we talked on the phone, cheap. we talked about like, um, <laughs> was this an initiative from the hospital or this like a this is a project? Like, how did you form this team to run this study, and where did the kind of idea come from? So Harvard Catalyst gets a free plug here at some point, I think. Um, So the way this project started, and there's some other things that our hospital is doing that have popped up just in the last couple of days um, that are obviously funded by mechanisms that I I don't understand. Mm -hmm. Um, But the way this started, uh, I'm in a program at Beth Israel called the Physician Leadership Program, where you need to come up with some type of quality-related project that you're dealing with. And so uh, when I started that program last fall, I said, all right, this is the project I want to work on. Um, So when I say there's no real funding for this, that's not true. So that is being funded by the Department of Surgery. Mm -hmm. Um, So Elliot Chekhov is from somewhere in the budget is paying for that. Um, I don't know what it costs. Um, It's obviously not cheap based on the training that I've gotten. Um, But in terms of the actual research part of this itself, um, it's actually has not been very expensive. Um, I've had no direct costs to do any of this. Um, The ER uh, database um, was created by some research assistants from the first program in Beth Israel's Department of Surgery. So that's funded by the Department of Surgery. Um, So it is it is funded by someone, but it's not, uh, you know, you didn't apply for a grant. I didn't apply for a grant for that. Yeah. Um, We got statistical support from Roger Davis at the Harvard Catalyst. Um, Mm -hmm. So he ran our uh, all of our logistic uh, regression (laughs) model. Roger Davis did the stats for us (laughs) from Harvard Catalyst. And he, you know, sent me some 200 page PDF with a lot of numbers. Um, So, so far, those have been the uh, areas of support, the Catalyst program, the Department of Surgery at Beth Israel Deaconess, um, the Physician Leadership Program at Beth Israel Deaconess. Okay. And the Physician Leadership Program, what's the goal of that program? So that's been around, don't quote me on this, but yeah. for somewhere between five to 10 years. Um, and it was a hospital-created initiative to identify physicians interested in developing administrative and other clinical research, teaching leadership roles within the institution. And uh, it's people from different disciplines, uh, I believe there are about a dozen of us. Um, there's one other colleague of mine from the Department of Surgery, but we've got you know, neonatology and uh, all sorts of different folks uh, representing. You know, we've got we've got the gamut um, in the group: anesthesia, you name it. And uh, basically, it involves a couple of different uh, facets. So we have monthly seminars um, where it's a four-hour seminar. We go over to Simmons. Um, we get a variety of different speakers to come in from around the community. 
talking about things uh, like leadership, uh, driving change, uh, communication, negotiation, um, sort of uh, almost more of like a business school type mm. curriculum. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of case-based learning involved in that. Um, been a lot of really interesting stuff, empowering um, responsibility in other people was the most recent thing we talked about. Uh, it's really fascinating. Uh, but in addition to that, um, you get assigned a uh, career coach, um, for lack of a better word. Uh, mine is Amy Wasserman, who's excellent. Um, she's been at Beth Israel for, for a while. Um, and they're in the organizational development group. And they'll, they've done a bunch of different things with us. They go through you know, doing Myers-Briggs testing, a whole bunch of other tests, uh, 360 evaluations um, to try to figure out your areas of strengths and weakness. And then basically, you know, we meet almost weekly talking about, you know, hey, I got this meeting coming up. How do I uh, you know, how do I follow on other people's comments and not alienate them? Hey, I've got this crucial conversation with my division chief coming up. What do I do? Um, so it's really wide ranging trying to get you those skills you need to have a leadership role in the hospital. Part of it is uh, doing a quality improvement project. Uh, luckily, it's not very focused on the deliverable uh, part okay. of it. Uh, it's really more focused on the experience, mm -hmm. um, which has been fortuitous for me since you know I've had some hiccups doing this, mm -hmm. um, and the hospital is doing some things that I think will usurp some of what I'm doing actually. Um, but it's been a good experience to try to you know figure out all right, what do you have to do to get a project going in a hospital this size? You know, who are the people who can help you? Who are the resources you have, um, et cetera, et cetera. So um, you talked about some of the challenges, like the text message issue. What other challenges have you had in getting this project off the ground and getting it completed? So um, the, the, I've had several challenges. So starting out, I mean, I, I think in my heart of hearts, I knew that this was not going to be straightforward because I've done other projects in my life um, and I've done other quality projects. And I just know from having done them before that things always happen when you're dealing with an organization and you're dealing with people, you know, something gives. Um, I didn't think it was going to be that complex though. I thought we'd get our statistical model Roger would tell us, all right, here's, you know, here are your issues. Right, Roger from Harvard Catalyst. Roger from Harvard Catalyst. You know, he's going to, you know, run his model. We're going to figure out what it is. And then, like I was saying a minute ago, we're just going to bombard people with text messages and solve our problem. Um, it took some time for Roger to do this. You know, this was a complex project and he's a pretty busy guy. He was working on a lot of grants. Um, that took some time to get that information. Obviously took some time to analyze it um, with his assistance that that was made easier. Um, and then once we said, all right, you know, it, to us, it seemed like age was going to be the easiest thing for our administrative staff to focus on when they were going to start booking these patients. Um, and in terms of earmarking, more enhanced follow-up for those folks. Well, the first thing we ran into, uh, looking at our tech system, uh, no one really knew how it worked within our group. Um and no one was actually looking at the reports that you get out of it initially to see who was confirming and who wasn't confirming appointments. Mm -hmm. And then we realized it had no customization. You know, people either opt opted in and they got one message once. So as soon as we ran into that, we realized that our ability to just come up with some huge intervention quickly here was really compromised. Um, so we had to take a step back at that point and say, all right, what are we going to do now? How are we going to look into this? And that's when we started looking with more granularity at individual charts, trying to figure out what other factors were coming into play, such as prior no-shows. Um, and then we started actually trying to do a little bit of prediction on our own. And as we were doing that, someone informed me the hospital was doing an artificial intelligence 
project on this exact issue. <laughs> um, so basically making the last couple of months of work that I've been doing basically moot overnight. Um, so those are just a couple, it's a sampling of the things we run into going through this project. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not deterred. I think that what's really interesting is this project, I think, encapsulates a lot of the resources that I know a lot of this is Beth Israel specific. Obviously, Catalyst is not. Um, but the very fact that just with this you know, small slice of the medical research pie, um, you know, we're able to get support from groups as diverse as, you know, catalyst, biostatisticians, um, but there are people all around the community who are doing a lot of similar things you could have synergy with. And I think it's important to sort of keep your eyes open for, for who those folks are. Um, obviously, when I started this project, I think it would have been great to know you know, the chief technology officer is working on mm. this particular project. Um, I don't think there was an obvious line of communication from me and the physician leadership program to this committee that was doing that. Um, but it's something that I think people should keep their eyes and ears attuned to and see who in the community is doing stuff that can help you and leverage what you're doing. Mm. And I think there are a lot of resources around here that are, that are like that. So how can people do that? You know, what are some ways that people can go find those people that are working on the things that they're interested in? Well, obviously, uh, I mean, certainly something like Catalyst is super helpful. I hate to get, <laughs> I'm not paid by Catalyst to keep plugging this. Well, we are paid by Catalyst. You are so. paid by Catalyst. So <laughs> certainly that that's one good clearinghouse for doing that. Um, I think that often, uh, I'll give you an example. In the Department of Surgery, we actually have an office that's dedicated to research-related endeavors. Mm -hmm. Jim Rodrigue uh, runs that um, office, and he's a PhD scientist. You know, he's a great resource for trying to figure out all right who's doing who's doing what in this in this particular space. Um, but all of the hospitals around here, you know, they've all got offices related to research activities, institutional review boards, um, you name it. Those are all good resources where you can try to find hey who's working. Do you, you know, hey guys at the IRB, do you know anyone who's working on you know X Y Z? Um, hey research support office, do you know anyone who's doing this? The folks in the grants office are going to know who's doing what. Um, a lot of times this stuff does get a little bit siloed, um, but that's a great way to find things. Uh, publications that a lot of departments or divisions put out about what they're doing are good ways to find out other things people are working on. Um, and hopefully it doesn't all just fall down to word of mouth, but often that's a good way to do it too. And it's always good to know, you know, who are your colleagues who are connected to what's going on? Who's got the pulse of the institution? There's always someone in every group who knows what's going on. And it's always good to befriend those people and figure out, you know, there's always, it's kind of like uh, Morgan Freeman's character in Shawshank Redemption, you know, he knew how to get stuff in the prison. Um, there's always someone in every division or department who knows that type of thing. And you got to figure out who that person is and they'll be able to get you, you know, get you the resources you need or, or plug you into the right people. Great. All right. Well, Dr. Steinberg, thank you for coming in. It's a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you. And thank you, Harvard Catalyst. Next time on Think Research. I've never spoken to a trans person who has never had a bad experience with uh, the healthcare system because it is a system that is founded on and believes uh, all things to be binary and set in stone. Now, I'll use myself a, as uh, an example here. I am a man who has to get a pap smear. And let me tell you the, the barriers associated with just getting that appointment and getting the insurance to cover it. And what does my chart say? And what are how do they code this? The system is not made for me. We continue our series, Community Engaged, and hear from Mason Dunn and Dr. Anna Progovats about health disparities in transgender populations. Thank you for listening. 
If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. Thank you.